podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got Calvin Betton here and we're going to look back at Wednesday's play of Wimbledon Day. God knows what. Ten, I think. It's just getting to the point now where I don't really know what day of the week it is or my own name. Actually, as that literally happened to me today, Calvin. I had to sign someone in as a visitor and I failed to put my own name down correctly or in the correct box. So um, You've obviously had a bit of time at home, so you're probably feeling quite refreshed. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Steady away, as I believe your regular phrase is. Yeah, uh, yeah I've had two days at home, but <laughs> also been on a tennis court on both of those days. So I actually have, two, <laughs> I have tomorrow and Saturday and maybe Sunday off, which will be the first days I haven't been on a tennis court since two weeks before the French Open. Wow. I what? Think. What? How, how does a tennis coach spend their days off, Calvin? I assume you just lived for it. Uh, I'll be spending tomorrow watching tennis with you and George, won't I? Think? <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, that so, is yeah, true. I won't have been on a tennis court. I'll just be staring at one. Yes, um, uh, just to kind of add as a lovely segue, Calvin. Well done. Uh, we will be doing a little bit of a, an experiment tomorrow. So we've teamed up with an app called Circus to do a little bit of beta testing. And what it basically means is, and what I've always wanted to do, was create a WhatsApp group with me, Calvin George, and a load of listeners. But I don't want listeners to have my phone number. <laughs> so what Circus is basically is that, is you'll be able to watch us chat. We're going to do it for the first set of Djokovic versus Sinner on Friday. Um, just the first set, because as I say, it is just a test. If you go onto our Twitter, you'll all you have to do is download Test Drive, which is like the the um, Apple test, uh, testing beta testing app, uh, and then download Circus. You'll see the two links on the on the thread on our Twitter account. I'll put the links in the show notes for this as well. Um, I don't know what the deal with Android is. I will try and find out for you, and once I've found out, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, and yeah, so from one thirty UK tomorrow, you'll be able to log on. And me, George and Calvin will just be watching. I mean, I'll be on centre. George will be at home. Calvin obviously is up in Yorkshire. And we'll just be having the usual nonsense that we chat during a tennis match. But you'll be able to see and take part and leave comments and reactions. And uh, hopefully it'll it'll be your ultimate second screen experience. Uh, I know the guys at Circus are very excited about it. So, um, yeah, we, we look forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime... We should look back at Wednesday, which was the second day of quarterfinals at Wimbledon. Uh, Ons Jabour beat the defending champion, Elena Rybakina, coming from... A, she lost first set in a tie-break and then came back to win it 6-4, 6-1 after that. Uh, Arena Sabalenka also beat Madison Keys, And then we got into the men's quarterfinals. Carlos Alcaraz, a straight-sets win over Holger Runa, and Daniil Medvedev beating Christopher Eubanks. Uh, and it's actually a an email about Holger Rune um, that I wanted to start as a kind of jumping off point um, because Lorraine has been in touch from Lincolnshire. She says, loving your podcast and views as usual, a lot of opinions about the scheduling. Just been listening to Annabelle on Five Live disagreeing with the scheduling and expressing how damaging this could be for Novak Djokovic if he gets dragged into a battle today. This was written on the day that he carried over uh, with Hubert Hercatch. Uh, I doubt it, she says. And how he won't get his day off. 
Well, I cannot feel any sympathy at all for that brilliant but arrogant man because what about all the years he gets to play the night match in Australia and doesn't have to contend with the sometimes extreme heat and blinding sunshine and usually has a fair idea of what time he'll be on and there's no curfew. It's no wonder he's won it so many times. Personally, I'm thrilled he's being inconvenienced for once. He'll still go on and win the title because nobody apart from perhaps Runa really has the balls and immense self-belief to beat him and I don't think Runa will get far enough to challenge him. Anyway, all of these predictions so far, Lorraine, turning out to be very, very good. I'm glad to get you on the pod. Um, she says, I feel for the fans on Centre and One who are paying a lot of money for their tickets because if they've been fortunate enough to get a ticket in the ballot, they're being let down if they don't get to see three, four matches. My idea would be start the outside courts at 11, as they do at the moment, number one at 12 and Centre at 12.30. If people are there for the tennis, they would be in their seats rather than in hospitality. I don't know. It's so complicated. There's so many factors. It'll be interesting to see if anything changes for next year. Best wishes, Lorraine. Um, thanks for your email, Lorraine. Calvin, um, that... Number one at 12, centre at 12.30, that would probably solve all the problems, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'd still just start them both at 12. I don't get why centre has to start half an hour later than number one, yeah. to be honest. Like, again, no other tournament does it. It's only Wimbledon that hmm. thinks it's more important than everywhere else. Do, um, what do you make of what she's saying about the scheduling? I mean, I don't want to get into the, oh, Novak Djokovic gets preferential treatment, but, you know, the top players do get preferential treatment. They don't get shoved around as much by playing under the roof. They're, they've got more reliable schedule. Obviously, you know, it, we know, for example, Rafa Nadal will always say to the the match, the, the tournament director, um, I'd like to play at the same time. You know, so if he's playing an afternoon match in round one, he wants to play an afternoon match as much as possible for the rest of the tournament. Is that fair? I mean, they are the guys in the end selling the tickets and pulling in the crowds, but... Yeah, they're never going to put them in the worst slot. They're never going to put them on, like, if they start matches at 11, like they do it, like the French, or I think probably um, US Open and Australian Open. They're never going to put them on first. Hmm. Anyway, it's just some of them will prefer to go on, like, like they have their preferences. Nadal likes to go on at the same time. Federer, as we know, used to prefer the night matches. Hmm. Um... They always used to put Murray on for that tea time slot, the yeah. last match on centre. Um, and he, I know he asked to not do that this year, um, which <laughs> yeah. didn't really matter in the end, did it? Um, but yeah, I'd, you know, I think that you know you get they they pander to them a little bit too much. I think the referees they shouldn't allow them to just tell them when they're when they're playing, but they mm. should also be aware that they're the people who sell the tickets and. And, you know, have a little bit of leeway in it as well. Mm. But I think that they should be... I'm not sure about Nadal saying he wants to play at the same time all the time. Especially when you've got day off in between. I think that they should have equal night matches and day matches mm. um, when there's that kind of thing going on. Wimbledon, it's impossible because they start in the early evening, basically. Yeah. Do, do you... Th I mean, you obviously coach players who are a bit further down the food chain. I mean... It Presumably, they they just accept their lot and go well. That's that's the way it is. I mean, is there much grumbling, kind of in the locker room about oh, you know, preferential treatment? Um, the main thing isn't with with scheduling on the doubles tour lower down, which is where I coach. Is isn't on what number match you're on. It's what day you'll play hmm. because it challenges. The doubles tends to be played on Tuesday or Wednesday, the first round. Yeah. Um, in ATP, in 250s, it tends to be Monday or Tuesday. Now, players will tend to, it's usually the preference, I'd say usually, but not always, players prefer to play on Wednesday.
Tuesday purely because there's only... So at Challenges, there's usually three doubles matches on Tuesday and the rest of them are on Wednesday. Mm. So players will prefer to play Wednesday purely because if you play Tuesday, it's difficult to get any practice the next day mm. because every all the other most of the other pairs are playing a match. There will have been three pairs who play. The likelihood is that two of those matches will be next to each other in the draw, so you don't want to practice with the, pl- the pair you're playing next. So that basically leaves one other pair for two pairs to practice with, if that makes sense. So most players will, I know the lads who I coach, will always prefer to play Wednesday purely for that reason, just so you can get some practice on Wednesday. Mm. Um, Or whereas if you, if they prefer to play Wednesday, so you can get that extra day of practice in, whereas if you play Tuesday, you're probably just hitting with yourselves on Wednesday. Mm. Um, But yeah, but having said that, I think Henry and Jules asked for, Wednesday starts, um, I, I forget what the actual number was, but they, let's say they asked for Wednesday starts 10 times and they've got Tuesday starts all 10. <laughs> so the referee, it depends on the referee. Some of the referees are helpful. They'll say, you know, yeah, okay, fair enough. Some of them will just say that there's they're, they're not making any preference to anybody. Well, the scheduling on Wednesday was fairly straightforward because we didn't have any matches carried over. We didn't have any matches that ended up getting held over. So um, the two sets of quarterfinals on the main courts got played. They started and finished on the same day and everyone was fairly happy about that. Uh, The match, Calvin, that we thought would be the pick of the day was Carlos Alcaraz against Holger Rune. And for about a set, it was, you know, pretty competitive, but... Holger said. Holger Rune said afterwards that he he'd woken up not feeling great, that he was feeling pretty fatigued. And um, this incidentally was the youngest quarterfinal in history. It's the first time ever that two under twenty one in the men's game that two under twenty ones have played in a Grand Slam quarterfinal. And I suppose that's the reality of having twenty year olds at the top of the game, Calvin. Right? Is fatigue is going to hit them? They haven't got that endurance that the older guys have got. Uh, yeah. But it's different, I guess, because you know you can say they've just got more in their legs. But um, I don't think I don't think endurance came into it yesterday. Alcaraz is just better than Rune. Mm. I just wonder whether because it's like I'm not, I don't mean endurance like on the day endurance. I mean more like volume of tennis over a long period of time, which both players have experienced at some point this year that kind of long term fatigue, like. I think that was part of the issue with Alcaraz in Paris. Um, we've seen Runa cramping up in multiple matches just because he plays a lot of tennis, I think. Um, although that was also a genuine endurance issue. Um, but do you, do you think it's just a, a skill issue, as they say? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I don't... I think that they were... You know, I think they were both, you know, as as fatigued as you'd expect them to be or anyone to be at the to, towards the latter stage of a major tournament. I don't think it was anything beyond that. And I just think Alcaraz is a better player than Rune. I think Rune is a good player. I don't think he's as good as Alcaraz. Mm. Mm. I, I do find it amazing, like, the... I think every time I watch Alcaraz, I sort of appreciate it. It's like a different element of his game. And I think that's true of a lot of great players who have lots of different things. Like, when you go and watch... As I'm trying to think of someone who's just a serve. I don't know. If you go and watch John Isner in the old days, the first time you watch him live, you're like, oh my God, like that serve is ridiculous. And, you know, I remember you, Calvin, playing against Ben Shelton at the French Open. And, and like, it's like, yeah, the serve, when it goes, it goes. Um, but I think the sign of a really great player is every time you see something different. And the thing for me with Alcaraz is his returning. 
like not just the sort of um the the actual quality of ball he puts back but the way he he just clearly has a good read on Holger Rune's serve which I maybe that comes from the fact they've played together and against each other for you know six or seven years but he just seemed to know where the ball was going all the time and I don't know whether Holger Rune has got a particularly readable serve or something but it's a it is a skill isn't it yeah I think it's um it's definitely something he's improved as well um I mean, Runa's got a decent serve. He hasn't got a huge serve. Somebody mm. was telling me, yes, I think one of my mates who doesn't really watch loads of tennis but makes out that he does, <laughs> he messaged me going, saying, uh, I mean, first of all, he goes, uh, it always cracks me up when people say this. Like, he goes, like, is this Runa lad uh, deserving of all the hype he's getting? And it's like, he said it like as if he's ranked like 100 in the world and people are talking him up. Like, well, yeah, he's, he's six in the world. <laughs> Like, you know, it's like, it's not whether he's deserving. It's like your ranking is what you, where you're at. Mm. Like, you know, he's he's six in the world, so, yeah. And then he goes, he's got a huge first serve. I was like, has he? Like, he's, got an, <laughs> you know, he's got an all right first serve. Yeah. Like, you know, it's quite good. It's quite good. I'd say it's, you know, in the top top 20% in the male game. It's not one of the best serves. It's not the best serve in the male game mm. or in the top 10 or 15, I don't think. I just wanted to ask you about, like, reading a serve and stuff because i mean we all know the famous story about that that we know to be a nonsense about is it andre agassi saying yeah, that becker, he yeah. he he claimed that boris becker stuck his tongue out when he served wide on the ad court yeah and yeah. you know the problem wasn't exploiting it it was making sure he didn't know that i knew and, and agassi has since admitted that it was nonsense yeah. um but like what is the skill to reading serve like uh, and equally, because what if I saw a couple of times when Holger Rune had clearly completely misread Alcaraz's serve and ended up having to, you know, play a weird angled shot because he's, he was just in the wrong position. What's the skill to reading and kind of um, deceiving your opponent with your serve? I guess. I mean, I think it's 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 basically sort of an anticipation and a perception thing, and there's three different types of reading it. There's you can read it off the toss, mm. like if. if, if a lot of players have a different toss as to where they're going to go, and but the the best players, they they don't their their toss is the same wherever you're going to go. Hmm. And I know, I know that I remember Pete Sampras, whose whose serve was unreadable, and everyone said it that his coach used to do something with him when he was younger, where he'd he'd have him throw the ball up, and then he'd shout to him when the ball was in the air where where to hit the serve. So wow. in order to in order to get so he got the same variation of any throw up. Um, but so you can read off the throw up, but that that's difficult. I think what mostly happens is players will will go off off scouting and tactics, and they'll think, right, I know this is what this is a serve he likes on on big points. This is a serve he likes on break points. Patterns of play, sort of. Yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't always work. And what, but what 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 tends to be with anticipation as well? I think is that they'll players will tend to go with what what an opponent can't do rather than what well that's the way we always say it's the way i always say about anticipation like if they can't do something or if they never do something take that out of the equation rather than say that this is what they are definitely going to do right so if you go like you know if you go break point he he never goes wide Hmm. then you can you can lean over right but that's better than going break point he's definitely going to go t i see okay so you just you basically just hedge slightly more narrowly so you've well, just you got... just take you take out the things that they can't or they're unlikely to do, and that will leave you less options. Rather mm. than say 
rather than saying this is what they're going to do because you never know what somebody is definitely going to do mm. you know you 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 go with the percentages mm. okay. um, or and the last one is you could just read it you can read the ball as it's coming through but in the men's game that's difficult you know yeah. it's um you get some players just have a better perception of early by the time the balls cross the service you know it's it's something that we we call the quiet eye in coaching it's it's how what you're focusing on as early as possible and a lot of the players can see things see the ball coming for example i think there was some study a few years ago that the best returners see that see the direction of the serve before it's past the service line on the server side wow and <laughs> that's the, and ridiculous the, yeah and then the worst returners they only see the direction when it's crossed the net mm. And it's I, only in reality, it's this, it's like about 0.02 seconds, hmm. but it makes the world a difference. And, and the quiet eye thing, is that like, it, I've sometimes noticed this when doing like reaction training drills in cricket, that somehow when you've, when you've got like, a, you've got to react to something and you don't know where it's coming in your field of vision, you've got to not focus on something, is that right? No, the quiet eye is, um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very, very complicated research it's very interesting but it's not something that you it's not an easy read right um there's a whole book about it i, I actually had the book i sold it on ebay about it's there's a book about it that you can't get anymore and it's i sold it for about 80 quid about three weeks ago <laughs> um but and it's by this this uh, sport this doctor who who discovered the quiet eye and incorporates decision making and that kind of thing but it's basically about what the difference between good and great and elite players and it's the, the quiet eyes where the elite where, where you're looking at what your focus is at the key moment and, and the main study on on the quiet eye was well i think it was it was on basketball and it was that the real elite players on free throws they they focus on the the ring so the hoop at the the back like the back of the hoop yeah. is what they focus on. Whereas like some people might focus on the backboard or something, but they, they looked and they discovered that the real elite free throwers, they focus on there's two screws at the back of the hoop, and that's what they looked at. Mm. Whereas the the good and the great, they might focus on various other little things. And it's just it's just what you're looking at. at it's not really about taking away what you're looking at. It's about what you're looking at at the key moment what your focus is at the key moment you don't always know that you're doing it they they had to do it they, the the players couldn't say they didn't tell them they put these special lenses on them that, oh, the that track saw, eye movement. Yeah, yeah yeah the eye trackers yeah that that to see where they were actually looking so and there will be something like that at tennis and it's not always something obvious it could be like a, a body movement of the opponent that you can see they might make a different like their shoulder might turn or their wrist might turn differently for a t or a wide serve mm. but you might like i say you might not and this is one of the things this this comes back to again when i i get into this gripe again about how people train this comes into it again with when you get people who just do loads of baskets and that kind of thing or they get servers to serve at them from the service line and that kind of thing and or ball machines that you lose all of that training if you do that kind yeah. of thing if you don't have the actual vision of a tennis player rallying with you serving at you in the right position then you lose that quiet eye side of things you lose the perception you lose the anticipation mm. yeah it's a completely different picture isn't it that's fascinating yeah or there's no picture at all if you've got a ball machine yeah there's no picture at all a ball just comes out of nowhere mm. 
Um, it's really interesting. I'm sure we could we could talk about it a lot more. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about Elena Rybakina though, Calvin, because uh, you've been telling me for a couple of days that she's going to win the whole thing, uh, and she was beaten by Ons Jabeur on uh, Wednesday in three sets, as I mentioned. Um, I mean, I guess Ons Jabeur, and, and because of when we're recording this, we now know that she will go a little bit further as well, but I guess for someone like Elena Rybakina, Jabeur is kind of the the archetype of someone who is a difficult opponent for her, like makes a decent amount of balls, like, you know, doesn't let her set her feet very much and, you know, has lots of tricks of the trade. Um, Yeah, although I think there was a key reason why Rebecca lost the match. That was because she only served at 28% in the third set. <laughs> and that that's what summed it up to me. I was talking with, with um, a friend of mine, Daniel Harris, who's a friend of the pod, uh, and he does the the blog on The Guardian yeah. uh, on Wimbledon. He was asking me, I was discussing the match with him as it was as it was going on, and he was saying how Jabur had played great and she should have won. The, I said, you know, that, as I just said, I said, I thought the, the key reason was Rebecca served 28% in the third. And he goes, no, nah, no, nah, come on, Jabur should have won the first set. And it, I disagreed because that Jabur might have overall been the better player in the first set, but because Rabakina served at 60, 62%, I think, in the first set, maybe, she could hold off Jabor in mm. doing that. And in the second set, for most of the second set, she could hold her off. And it was only when her serve, when she started making basically no serves, that Jabor's level kind of stayed the same. Just And, and she was playing excellently. But Rabakina's serve was the, was the key factor in the match for me. The serve was there, and then it wasn't. And that's what decided the match. When you've got a player like that who is kind of... Do you think the other areas of her game maybe get neglected or they don't look at it or it's not such an obvious problem because the serve gets you out of jail and so you maybe don't interrogate those days so much? No, I don't think so. I think it was more that, that Jabor was playing very well, mm. but Rebecca had this antidote, which was the serve, that she could get out of that. Rebecca was playing really well, Rebecca wasn't, and she could play a lot better than that off the ground. <clears throat> But she wasn't doing, and I think that on that particular day, that she could have, you know, I, I do think, you know, if Jabor plays her best and Rebecca plays her best, Rebecca will win almost all of those matches. Mm. Um, but she has to serve, and the problem was, I think, in the two games that, that she got broke, I, I think she only made one first serve uh, in the third set, and I think it might have been in the three games she got broke, end of the second, and the three games, the two games she got broke in the third, she only made one first serve, and she won that point. Mm. on the first serve. Um, Tells all you need to know probably, but, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think sometimes we can just we can just um you know, overanalyze things, but I'm still pretty insistent that even if even if Rebecca like she, you as a singles player you want to be serving at 62, 63% first serve up towards 70% first serve. I still think that if Rebecca and I could have served at 50% in the third set, she'd have won the match. Mm. But she didn't serve at 28, which is very very low. Mm. Um, on number one court, Arena Sabalenka beat Madison Keys six two six four. I don't really want to spend too much time on that match because she's a better tennis player. She out hit her. Keys didn't play her best, uh, and I kind of think that's just what will happen most of the time in that particular head to head. Um, and really, the match I want to talk about. Oh, sorry, Calvin. No, I was going to say someone said to me yesterday that um, Sabalenka is just better at playing that style of tennis than Keys is. I don't. I don't even know if she's better. There is an argument that she's better at it. I think it's more that Sabalenka is just, she just brings that level. I, I think their actual top levels and their bottom levels, there's not a whole lot between it. Just Sabalenka just manages to bring her top stroke middle level 
more than Madison Keys does. Mm. But in terms of actually hitting the ball flat and hard and for winners, they can both be very, very good at that. Yeah. But I must give you a stat, Calvin, that I was passed today uh, via IBM at Wimbledon, who told me that Arena Sabalenka's average shot speed at this tournament has been 74 miles an hour, and the uh, average shot speed in the men's singles is 71 miles an hour. And I think that probably, and, and you'll be able to tell me if I'm right or wrong here, sums up the difference between the men's and the women's game is not that men hit the ball faster, but that they hit the ball, you know, harder, i.e. Or, or with a lot more spin and, you know, a bit more cover and are able to maybe control the ball more because of that? Um, well, first of all, that stat is an absolute bullshit stat. Um, <laughs> and I've had this discussion and serious arguments with with somebody who might be a, a, an analyst who might have been in the latter stages of this tournament who has a high <laughs> opinion of himself. Um, but yeah, the, you know that that person was constantly rabbiting on about average shot speed. It's just an absolute nonsense. It's a complete irrelevance, right? The reason is that the men, as you say, and this is not me being sexist or favouring one or the other, but it's a fact that the men play, the men change the the speeds of their shots more hmm. than the women do. That they they play with more slices, they play with more shape on certain things, and a key thing is that the men defend with slice and spin and height more than the women do. Mm. The women, if you go at it, if, if you watch them, they go flat, 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 and then somebody will miss. Whereas when the men are in trouble, they'll go flat, flat, in trouble, slice, chip, stick it up with a bit more pace. Mm. It's not... It, it's And there's there's just more variation in the men's game. Not it, It's nothing to do. So just average shot speed is just an absolute nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. It's a too sort of heavy-handed, um, not heavy-handed. It's a blunt instrument of a stat, I suppose. Yeah, but it's it's it. basically what it is, James. Is if is if is if me and you play a match, and you're say say you're much more skilled than I am, and I'm just leathering every ball. It's likely, yeah. If, if you're, I'm just leathering every ball at say say my, I, I'm I'm hitting every ball at eighty miles an hour, mm. for example. But you're hitting your. You can hit the ball harder than me as well. So say you you can hit the ball. If you really go after it, you can hit eighty seven miles an hour. But then what you'll do is you'll throw a little. You'll throw more slices and chips and uh, and fades in. So my average ball speed is eighty miles an hour. Yours is probably down at seventy two. But then when your it big, comes to it, you get a short shot. ball yeah. and you just you just rake one off at ninety miles an hour. Hmm. And it's like, what does average shot speed mean then? Yes, I suppose it's when mean and median are, are, are two quite different things, and maybe a median average in this case would be a little bit, uh, a little bit more helpful. I think you, there's ways of get you know if you want to look at things like that, look at there's you know things like I know that tennis insights do something about conversion that when you're on when you're in top when you're on top in the rally, what's your conversion rate? Right, and that and that would be more appropriate to me because yeah. I suspect that Sabalenka's. And, and also, just the rally ball as well, like you said, James, that the rally ball of the men has more s- shape on it. Mm. It has, you, you know, it has a little bit more shape on it, whereas the women's is flatter and a flat ball is going to go harder. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the what, what was going to say, so Sabalenka, yeah, it's just every ball is basically, as average is going to be high because she doesn't hit any slices yeah. or anything. She goes flat and hard every ball. Yeah, someone, uh, Danny Rogers, who's a friend of the pod and who came on and talked about Brandt, he was watching Savalenka the other day and he was like, yeah, I don't think she hit a single slice in the entire match. 
Um, she 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 doesn't half batter it. Um, it's an intimidating game style, but it's not it's not particularly. Well, you still get these situations where, like, you know, like they'll say something like, you know, they'll. I mean, Jabor to be fair is a bit different. Jabor is a very skillful player. Yeah. But I've heard like play, you know, other players referred to, and you'll go like, oh, you know, you hear the commentator go, she's very very skillful, and it's like, well, no, she just occasionally slices her backhand. <laughs> like that's that shouldn't be the bar, you know, that shouldn't be the the standard that we've set for mm. for very skillful in the women's game. I think she she also like she hits so many different types of ball like in the way that we say sometimes that the the women's game doesn't have she hits a lot of different types of ball and so that does, yeah. you know that you can kind of understand why that that comes to me. But that comes to I think I've told the story on the pod before I know um one of the a couple of the Tunisian players quite well and they were telling me about a year ago that the difference and you know female players they tend to like their, their training tends to be a lot of drilling mm. they tend to stand there and drill with each other and on Jabor back in when she was at the the national training camps that they did in Tunisia she all she wanted to do was was go with the guys and play their touch games and their skill games and join right. in with them and none of the other girls did it um, but but she absolutely loved doing it apparently mm. and you can tell now she's still very very close with the Tunisian male players right. who she did all that training with yeah, yeah, and you can always see, like, you always see clips of her doing different things in in training, and you know, yeah, doing those those different games and, and working on those skills, and it is it's good to watch. I mean, it's good tennis to watch. I'll tell you that much. Um, let's move on just to the final singles match uh, from Wednesday, which is Daniil Medvedev against Daniil Medvedev against Christopher Eubanks. Calvin, you picked Eubanks to win this, and you, you weren't far off. You got pretty darn close. Uh, he was two sets to one up, took it into a, a four set tiebreaker, but then. Medvedev won the tiebreak and then six to the next seven games to get through it. I mean, it it wasn't like, with, with the greatest respect to both players, it wasn't a classic of a five-setter. It was two hours 58 for a five-set match, which is pr- pretty remarkable when you actually think about it. But, yeah. you know, I mean, Christopher Eubanks will be back. Maybe I don't know if he'll be back in a Grand Slam quarterfinal. I hope he will be. Yeah, I, th- I thought, yeah, I mean, it was one of those. I actually said earlier on in the pod that I thought I made Medvedev 60-40 favourite, but I mm. just fancied that I needed to get some points back on George, and I thought <laughs> that, was, that was the most likely one. Yeah. Um, but, um, um, yeah, it, I, I, I was flicking, with, I was actually watching more of, it was on at the same time as um, Runa and Alcaraz, wasn't mm, it? Yeah. And I was watching more of that, but I kept flicking over and... Yeah, it was much of what you expected. I really thought he was going to... At the end of the th- uh, the fourth set... Fourth or third set? Third set, wasn't it? Yeah, at the end of the third set, I thought he's going to win this here because Medvedev was in one of those moods where you could see him going away and him and just not getting it back. But, yeah. Um, yeah, he wobbled. He just wobbled a bit, did Chris. And um, he... Yeah, I, I think he might be back in a quarterfinal. Hmm. He's in good form. And I think he's got. He knows what what he knows now is he knows how what he has to do to win those matches. Yeah, um, I've got a couple of amazing stats for you from this match. Um, Daniil Medvedev hit thirteen unforced errors in the entire match. Now unforced errors, like he he made an interesting point, and and we've just had an argument about stats, Calvin. And, and I see what you make of this. Someone said to him, "You only made thirteen unforced errors in that entire match." You know, what do you think of that? It was Tumani actually, Carriel of the Guardian, who asked the question. And he said, well, you know, with Chris, it's actually quite hard to make unforced errors because, like, you don't often get 
a ball where an error that you make off it would be unforced. It would more often be a, a forced error. Um, I mean, I guess unforced and forced errors, Calvin, it's just whoever's watching it and doing the stats that day ticking the box, isn't it? It is to a degree, but I mean, I, I chart matches for um, for my players and I like to think I have a pretty good handle on what's a forced and what is an unforced. Mm. Um, you know, I always think if, if the player was dis- if the player would have been disappointed that they didn't make some sort of worthy shot there, that's an unforced error. Yeah. Like, you know, so if, if it's like, if they, I don't count an unforced error, I don't count a forced error as where they, you know, the players just laced it and they've got, barely got a racket on it. That's basically a winner. Mm. But if, if you, if it's not entirely your fault that you've missed it, but you think like, you know, you look after and go, I, I could have, I, I could have made that. Mm. That that is a force. If you're under pressure, when if you're under some sort of pressure of hit, yeah. when you do it, if if the opponent's shot has affected your hit to the to a degree, that is a forced error. Mm. Um, um, but he's right. He's hundred percent right in what he said there. That you know you can't always read. There, there was one that I think there was one match. I think it was like maybe the semi of an Australian Open. A while, uh, years ago when Agassi beat Rafter and he only hit six unforced errors but Rafter serve and volleyed on both serves so <laughs> you, you know that that's how Rafter used to play so the likelihood of Agassi making unforced errors yeah. was minimal because Agassi was one of the best returners we've ever had in the game if not the best um, and Rafter was serve and volleying so basically every rally went on for three shots Can you uh, make an unforced error off a first serve? Uh, you can yeah I think, yeah, if it's there on the racket and it's not a great serve, yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, like if, yeah, you know, off Diego Schwartzman's first serve, yeah, for sure you can make an unforced error. Mm. Um, the other stat I just wanted to highlight, and there's nothing you need to say about it, but 74 winners from Christopher Eubanks in that match, which is yeah. just, I mean, I love it. You said the other day it's the style that, we all wish kind of players like that would go into those matches and uh, and play like. Um, the controversial moment came in the third set in, in what you were describing, that sort of Medvedev funk uh, when he was going into that mood, when, as he can sometimes. And he was running down a drop volley from Eubanks. It bounced a couple of times and he hit it away sort of sideways, uh, horizontal, uh, sideways from the court. And it hit a camera person. According to the BBC commentary, it hit one of the camera operators. She, she wasn't hurt, um, as far as I could tell. But he was given an unsportsmanlike conduct warning by Damien Dumasoir. Now, given the history that tennis has with when you hit a ball away in frustration or anger or basically not in pursuit of a point, to quote the handbook, um, I think Tim Medvedev was incredibly cheeky to be complaining about only getting a warning when, realistically... He, you know, he could have been DQ'd for that. I, the rules don't say anything about if it hits someone or how hard it has to hit someone. But I think as soon as you hit a ball away in anger, and you may disagree on this, Calvin, but I think as soon as you hit a ball away, not trying to win a point, you, you sort of put your hands, your fate in the hands of the gods. I, I sort of agree and I sort of don't because he didn't hit it hard. And I don't think the pace that he hit it at would have, would have, done, would have hurt anybody. Mm. Um, but we also I don't know whether we do need to have a set rule on this you can't I don't like if that would have hit a, a line judge I think he probably would have been defaulted yeah now line judges health and safety isn't more important than the people who are uh, holding the cameras 
on the uh, court. A lot of players so, would claim that the people holding the cameras are more important than the line yeah, judges. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't mind the umpire having discretion on it and, and the umpire deciding, to be honest, on that kind of thing, because I think it's such a grey area. You know, and it's like you are, you know, but then you have situations like when Djokovic, you know, he hit that ball and it hit the line judge in the throat. That was a DQ. That was a DQ. Mm. But you still had his fans claiming it wasn't. Yeah. It's like you know, it, until that, that's the problem with. Again, I say this is this is how football's gone the way it has that we're now just obsessed that we need an absolute rule on everything. Yeah. Because we can't just let the the decision makers make the decisions and go. You know, yeah, fair enough. Like, for example, the other day, I didn't think Andreva's was... Um, I didn't think Andreva's was a, a code violation. Mm. But I, I don't have a problem with the umpire making that decision on it. Yeah. You know, we can disagree on it. Mm. She, she also got fined $8,000, we now know, um, if people yeah. are interested in that. I do, think, I do think Medvedev was a bit lucky, if I'm honest. Yeah. I, I don't think it was a DQ, but I do think he was lucky that he's he's got away with got away with one there. I just, I mean, my, and, you know, I, as you say, we don't need absolute rules and everything, but I, I would, especially because, like, I, and, and this is what it comes back to, I don't want a kid playing at a tennis club to watch a player hit a wall away in anger and nothing happen, because, like, that's that's not a good thing to teach people, like, on any level. I, I think my, what it comes to for me that, James, there is, like, because I've, I've played a bit, I know that. I don't think that ball is anger. It's like a little bit of frustration. Hmm. I would have it that if you whack a ball in anger, and even if it goes nowhere near a person, I think that's dangerous. Yeah. Like, because you you don't really know where you're whacking it, and it can, as we saw with Denis Shapovalov, yeah. once you swing a racket that hard, it can go anywhere. Yeah. So I would like to say, right, that's that's a DQ. Yeah. Even if you, you know, players would stop whacking balls then. Yeah, well, well I mean, and and that and that's what I would want to see. And and yeah. you know, as soon as it happened, Medvedev looked like as so, the second it happened, he was like, "Oh, bollocks." Yeah, but I've also seen players get—I forget what it was. I've seen a play. I don't even know whether it was something I was at or whether it was on on the t- TV in the last year, where players just kind of been like, it wasn't like anger; it was more just a bit of frustration mm. that they're and they've just kind of like just sort of kind. Of, Battered it, where, I suppose. Not, yeah, not even hit it hard, just like a bit like pissed off of how this mm. is going. So they've just kind of like knocked a ball up in the air, like not with any pace or anything. And the umpire's thrown code violation warning in. And like that kind of thing's just ridiculous, yeah. I think. You know, it's like we have to kind of know what we're at. The uh, I thought the, the kind of interesting thing was, yeah, per- partly his reaction. Uh, but also his explanation afterwards, when he said it was proper, like 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 that weird uh, Williams and Lucas sketch where the prime ministers read the pre- the uh, and politicians reading a letter about how he accidentally slipped and fell into an intern, um, and it was proper like, well, I was trying to just chip it over the net, but you know this is grass and it bounced a bit funny, so I I hit it in a different direction. I was like, mate, like you were trying to chip it over the net and you hit it like ninety degrees right of the net. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just wasn't yeah. really very believable, but you know, yeah. no, nothing came of it. And uh, Chris Eubanks didn't seem that bothered by it, which I mean, nothing seems to bother Christopher Eubanks particularly. So, um, yeah, maybe that's, that's. I think it's a bit, di- you know, it's with the odd exception in the men's game. I don't think they'll press on that. I think in the women's, they they might there's certain players who would have definitely been trying to get the DQ there. Mm. 
Mm. Well, mm. yeah, although it did happen literally last year with our friend Nick Kyrgios, who spent a whole changeover asking why the umpire didn't default Stefan Sitsipas for whacking well, a ball into the crowd. That's it, a guy who's just really loves tennis. Um, <laughs> but to be fair, yeah. probably should have been a default as well. Anyway, uh, moving yeah. on, we are going to look uh, back at... Uh, well, well, you know, I, I'm not even going to pretend. I was going to say, oh, come back tomorrow. But it's not going to be tomorrow. It's going to be me and Calvin in about 30 seconds time. But it'll be a whole new pod uh, focusing exclusively on what's going on today on Thursday at Wimbledon. Sports Social Podcast Network.